Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. You can put up the first slide, Rachel. You've probably all seen this before, but at sporting events when... uh, or concerts when guys arrive with a John 3.16 poster. This is actually a photoshopped image. The guy didn't run on the field with John 3.16 and therefore got tasered. It's not a conspiracy against Christians. Don't, don't worry. Uh, the next slide is a picture of Tim Tebow at the 2009 uh, BC. <laughs> James is a big Tim Tebow fan. He believes he occasionally uh, substitutes for the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. Um, but... <laughs> Tim, this is Tim Tebow at, uh, at the BCS championship game in 2009. And in fact, uh, Google reported the day after this photograph, uh, or, the, or the day after this happened on TV, the, the phrase, uh, T, or the name Tebow, or Tim Tebow, or John 316 were actually the three most searched uh, terms or items on, on Google. So um, does anyone know, in a little bit of trivia, but in 2011, Tim Tebow quarterbacked the Denver Broncos to a uh, overtime victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Does anyone know or hazard a guess how many yards he actually threw for that particular night? 316 yards. So don't, don't anyone say God is not interested in football. Don't anyone, anyone say that. The bringing of, of these posters to concerts and sporting events was happening way before Tim Tebow and way before baseball was invented. In fact, if you can go to the next slide, um, this is actually a, 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 an event that happened where John the, Bap- John, the author of the book that we're studying, went, used to go to gladiator events. And um, if you can't see it, that sign says, me, 316. That's, uh, that's John kind of pushing his own, uh, his own verse. So <laughs> we are speaking to this morning, I am speaking this morning, about the verse that John, not only John would, pop, would probably consider the most important in his gospel, but what arguably is the most important and powerful verse in all of Scripture. And it's, it's the most important and the greatest verse in all of Scripture because it contains the greatest news. And that is that God so loved the world, we all know this, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We are pursuing in this series through the book of John the question of who is God? That's the kind of overarching question that we're going to be taking the next 12 to 14 weeks to study as we go through the book of John. And the reason why we've chosen specifically the book of John is because he writes in chapter 20, he says this, he says, John writes, this book is written that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And as we learned last week, Jesus teaches us in John 14, he says, if you really know me, and and, and I I need to emphasize this, that word know is a very important word to understand. In the original Greek, there were actually four different words that we translate to the word know. There is knowledge that comes from hearing, knowledge that comes from observation, knowledge that comes from intellectual study, and then fourthly, there's knowledge that comes from personal, intimate, life-transforming experience. And what Jesus is saying when he says, if you really knew me or if you really know me, he's meaning if you, if you really experienced me, if you really allowed me into your heart, if you allowed my transforming power to change you, then you would know the Father. That's the kind of knowing that we are after. That's the kind of knowing that we are in pursuit of as we study this book 
um, John's gospel. Mark Nelson, as he, was, as he was closing the meeting last Sunday, prayed for us, that, 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 uh, and, and he said this, and I think it's a wonderful summary, wonderful summary of what we're trusting for in the series. He prayed that just like the, the sun melts away the snow, and, and in doing so reveals what was previously hidden underneath, that, that through the series, that the radiance of Jesus, the radiance of his glory, the radiance of his goodness would, would melt away the lies and the confusion that the world brings upon us um, in, in terms of our understanding of who the Father is. And that really is our heart. So today, the question, who is God? We're going to answer it by saying, God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who saves. And so um, if you have a Bible, we are going to be studying John 3, but I want to take uh, five or, or eight minutes or so just to um, kind of walk ourselves, walk us together through John chapter 1 and 2 because we have uh, skipped over a few passages, uh, and we're going to have to do that through the series. We're going to have to jump a little here and there, but I want us to, to grasp the continuity of the story. So let me just take a few moments to, to kind of catch us up as to where we are at in the story. The narrative of John's gospel begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, and uh, John introduces us, or John uh, writes about the first few days of Jesus' ministry. And we are firstly introduced to John the Baptist. This is not John who wrote the gospel, but this is John the Baptist, a very uncomplicated man, a very simple man who, who preached a very profound yet simple message. Uh, he would say of himself in, uh, in, in John one, he would say of himself, I am the voice, or I am a voice, of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. And so what John the Baptist was given the task of doing was, was kind of coming as a, as a predecessor, as, a, as one announcing the coming of Jesus, calling people to express, outwardly express repentance or, uh, through baptism in preparation for the coming Messiah. That was John's ministry. He wasn't the Messiah. He was preparing the way for, for Jesus to come. And, and we read in verse 29 of chapter 1, when, when John sees Jesus for the first time, he makes two very profound statements about Jesus' ministry. And it's worth noting because it, it points to what Jesus has come to do. In verse 29, the first thing John says when he sees Jesus, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we've celebrated that already, and, and we need to continue to celebrate that. My sins have been forgiven. Jesus was judged in my place. Not just my sins, but the sins of the world. The sins past, present, and future have been forgiven by Jesus on the, on the cross. The wrath of God, the anger of God was completely satisfied by Jesus. There's no need ever for another sacrifice to be made. As Jesus said on the cross as he was hanging, as he breathed his last, it is finished. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But a few verses later, John introduces us to a second very important aspect of Jesus' ministry. In verse 33, he says, And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's a very important part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit so that we can experience, and I emphasize that word, experience God. God wants us to experience Him. We mustn't be nervous of, of, of experiencing God. 
the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the, is the assurance of sonship. It's the assurance of salvation. It's the confidence that we have to, to come into the presence of the Father, to, to pray boldly and powerfully in the name of, of Jesus. It's, it's to be used by God in the gifts of the Spirit. It's to, it's to have the confidence to, to walk in step with the Spirit, to walk into truth, to, to, to believe God and take Him at His word and to tell others about Jesus. It's to live a very normal life, very supernaturally, in the authority and in the power that comes in the name of Jesus. We mustn't forget that second part of Jesus' ministry, not just, as important as it is, taking away the sins of the world, but Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. In verse 35 of chapter 1, this, the account of Jesus' first few days continues, and, and, and it tells us of Jesus gathering his disciples um, all the way through the end of, of, of the first chapter, over into the second chapter where Jesus goes to a wedding and performs what we know to be the first miracle. Now, very interestingly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John only chooses to mention or to record seven of Jesus' miracles. But each one is very specifically chosen, pointing to God, pointing to and to, to helping us to answer the question, who is God? I want to just quickly run through those seven because, again, we might not touch them all through the series. You can take a note of them and in your own time go and study a little further. So very quickly, here are the seven miracles that are mentioned in the book of John that point us to something of who God is. In John chapter 2, we, we, we learn that Jesus turned water into wine. And this is a great picture of Jesus alone being the source of eternal life. He is full of the new wine of grace and mercy. In John chapter 4, Jesus heals the official son. And this teaches us that we can take Jesus at his word. Jesus didn't need to go to the physical location where the son was. The, the official just took Jesus at his word because... He is faithful because Jesus is faithful, not the official, because Jesus is faithful. In John chapter 5, we, we, we learn about the healing of the paralytic. And this teaches us that Jesus, under the leading and inspiration of the, of, of the Father, under the direct instruction of the Father, is able to powerfully and sovereignly step into our lives and to rescue us from whatever we might be facing. John chapter 6 talks about the feeding of, five, of the 5,000, the miracle of incredible provision, supernatural provision. God is able to meet all of your needs in Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom, Matthew 6 tells us, and Jesus' righteousness. And all of these things, all of the, 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 the materialistic things that we need, the things we need for survival, all of those things Jesus says he will take care of. At the second part of John chapter 6, we learn about Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. Jesus is able to powerfully control and stop and seize anything that seeks to overwhelm you or destroy you. John chapter 9, Jesus heals the, the man born blind. He is the one who opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. And then lastly, in John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He even has power over death. And so after the wedding, which ends in verse 11 of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples make their way back to Jerusalem, which is the context or the setting for the verses that we're going to study today. And when Jesus arrives back in Jerusalem, he encounters the, the hustle and bustle of the marketplaces that have been set up within the temple. 
And violently, and yes, violently, Jesus brings an end to the market. I wish I... I wish this was, if I can be honest, wish this was one of the passages that we were studying because it's such an awesome passage. Can I just say what motivated Jesus, what motivated Jesus to drive out the money changers from the temple was he desired God's house to be a place where people encounter his father. I think it's in Matthew's account of, of this, he says, uh, 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 let my house, my house is, is called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Some people, actually in John chapter 2, it said, they said, they recalled, when Jesus did this, they recalled the verse, zeal for your house will consume you. I pray that's true of us. I pray we, we say, we are not, we, yes, we are enamored by Jesus. Yes, we are consumed by Jesus. But can I say, friends, if we are consumed with Jesus, then we need to be consumed with zeal for his church. We cannot say we love Jesus and we have disregard or, or contempt for the church. The church is the body of Christ. You persecute the church, Paul learned this. You persecute the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You hate the church, Jesus will say, why do you dislike me? Why do you hate me? Zeal for the house of the Lord consumes us. And so this brings us to John chapter 3. And let's work our way through some of these verses together. A really fascinating passage of scripture. Verse 1, if you can read with me. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he, he definitely would have uh, uh, known or heard about Jesus, if not been there himself in the temple when Jesus came to, to chase out the money changers. He definitely would have known that. Which is perhaps why it tells us in verse 2 that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, under the cover of night. And he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Before we go on, I I need to make two comments about Nicodemus so that we can understand what some of the verses that are going to flow. First thing I want to say is, is Nicodemus seemed to be a really nice guy. He wasn't like the other Pharisees that Jesus had called hypocrites at times. This guy, he seemed to acknowledge and seemed to admire Jesus. He certainly acknowledged that God was powerfully upon Jesus and working powerfully through Jesus. I would say it's probably safe to assume that he was sincerely seeking truth. Nicodemus wanted to know uh, about truth, and, 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 I, and I think he was a moral man, obviously being one of the Pharisees. He was a moral and an and upright man. But friends, we need to understand this. Living a moral and upright life does not save us. Being a religious person does not save us. Nicodemus says this about Jesus. Rabbi, we know There's that word again. We know you are a teacher. That is not the same no that Jesus says, if you know me, you will know the Father. This no is this word. If Jesus, I have observed. I have been watching you from a distance. And I've noticed that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus didn't know Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. Those who are judged or perceived to be good in our society, in our circle of friends, need Jesus just as much as those who are perceived or judged to be sinners. And that's the, that's the reason I think we're going to study this next week. That's the reason why the very next chapter 
is John chapter 4, which deals with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus' encounter with her. Two very different people, but both in need of Jesus. Both desperately in need of Jesus. By the way, that's your reading for the course of this week, if you can, John chapter 4. We're going to be studying that next week. I want to ask you just to take a moment, please, because I don't want this sermon to be good preaching simply, and I hope it is good preaching, but I want it to be transformative. I want, this, I want this sermon to be personal. And so I want you to think right now of a friend or a family member that you're trusting to see saved. I want you to bring that person to, to the forefront of your, of your mind's eye. Perhaps that person is like Nicodemus, a good and moral and righteous man, as good as it is possible to be good. Perhaps that person that you're thinking of is like the Samaritan woman that we're going to study next week, who is caught in the, in the hurt and the pain from multiple broken relationships, crying out, desperately crying out to try and find worth or dignity. Or perhaps this, this friend that you're thinking of or family member is someone like Paul, who was a, 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 a violent opponent to the gospel, and, and his heart was hard. Friends, I want to say, no matter where your friend or family member falls in that spectrum, God's arm is not too short to save. God, not you, God is the only one who can rescue that person, that friend or that family member. The second thing I want to say about Nicodemus is that Nicodemus, although Nicodemus believed in miracles, he did not believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior of of his life. And I think sometimes we can make that mistake. We can assume that just because someone has the faith to believe that God can heal or that Jesus can heal, that automatically they're going to have the faith or the, or the conviction that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, that Jesus died for their sins. And that's not always the case. Miracles sow seeds of faith, but it's not the gospel. Miracles point us to Jesus, the Savior. Miracles provide a platform from which the gospel can be preached and shared with people. Friends, and even for ourselves, can I say, God doesn't just want us to have faith in the things that he does. God wants us to have faith in who he is, in who we know him to be, in the way that we relate to him. God desires us not just to have faith because we see him work. God desires us to have faith because we take him at his word. That's the level of faith God wants and God desires for us. In fact, Jesus even says to, when the official in John chapter 4 says, won't you come to my house and heal my daughter? Jesus says to them, he says to him and the crowd that is listening, unless you, plural, unless all of you see, see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. God wants us to learn to trust him and take him at his word, not just by the things that he does for us. If I can just share a quick story about our citizenship and our journey. There was a time uh, about uh, a a year before we received our green card. Uh, It was probably September. We received notification from the government that our green card application had been denied. And we had three months to leave the country. And that was quite a shock. I mean, we had believed, we, do, we did believe that God had called us here, and we were very surprised when we, when we received that. And I remember so clearly one night, Debs had gone out with some of her friends to a movie or out to dinner, I think, and Caden at that time was a few months old. 
And I remember rocking him to sleep in my arms, praying in the spirit. And as clearly as anything, I felt God say these words to me. You are holding your son. You are holding your son of promise in the land that I've called you. Stand strong. That's what he said. And I knew right away, right away, even though the next day we didn't receive a letter from the government saying, sorry, we, we made a mistake. We knew right away that God was calling us to this nation. And a few months later, yes, we did appeal and the government reversed their decision. And hence, we're still here today and celebrating this great day. It is a big deal. But God, friends, God wants, to ta- God wants us to take him at his word. And so I ask you this morning, what has God asked you to stand in faith for? What has God promised you that you haven't yet seen outworked? I want to encourage you today, stand firm on the word of God. And you might say, Steve, how? How do I do it? Well, I want to say every one of us who are believers in Jesus know how to take God at his word. Were any of you at the crucifixion when Jesus died on the cross? Did any of you see Jesus raised from the dead? No. We are saved because we took God at his word. And friends, it's the same thing when we walk into his his calling for us. God promises us these things. It's the same faith. We believe that God is true to his word. Just like we know Jesus died and was raised from the dead three days later. Stand firm on the word of God. And so Jesus, in verse 3, interrupts Nicodemus. If you have a look with me, in verse 3, as Nicodemus is talking, Jesus interrupts. He says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. He says, listen, Nicodemus, listen carefully. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And again, in verse 5, he says the same thing. He says, I tell you the truth. He says it again. He's He's saying, like, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Some people take that to mean born of water, born of a woman, natural birth, and born of the Spirit, a supernatural work of God. That's that's totally fine. I personally think that Jesus is actually talking about the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, born of water and the Spirit. Because Nicodemus is a learned man, because he's one of Israel's teachers, he knows his Old Testament. I think, God was, I think Jesus was referring back to a passage in Ezekiel 36 where, where Ezekiel prophesies this. Uh, God promises this. He says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you notice the times the number of times I said I will I will I will I will I will it's the lord saying friends salvation is a work of god Salvation is not, our, it's not our response. It's not something we do. It's not a work of the flesh. It's not at all. In, in verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Salvation doesn't happen by cleaning your life up. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me tell you, you don't have to sort yourself out before God will receive you. You don't have to try and clean your life out. I I need to stop this first before God will receive me. No, you come as you are. I tried for a year. I had a terrible 16 to 19. Those three years were terrible years for me. And I remember going to church for an entire year, cleaning my life up but as dead as anything on the inside because I did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Salvation, friends, is a work of the Spirit. It's a work of God. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's It's mysterious. It's not controlled by us. We must come out from under the pressure of feeling like we are responsible to save people. We are responsible and are called to share the gospel. And that is all we can do. How liberating is that, friends? Because it is a work of the Lord. Only God can save. Only God can heal. Even praying for the sick, friends, is not something we can work up. We simply step out in faith and do what we can do and trust that God would do what only He can do. We've all been there, haven't we? Times when we've, when we've maybe met with an unbelieving friend and we've preached the gospel boldly and courageously and, and we are absolutely sure that they were going to get saved, only for them not to. Or at times when someone has asked us a question and we've kind of fumbled our way through the gospel and really been ashamed at our inability to adequately articulate the truth of Scripture, and then we find out them asking, how do I get saved? Why? Because it's a work of the Spirit. And we need to come out from underneath the condemnation. And maybe I'm the only one who carries this. But I know at times, I live under the condemnation of not seeing people saved, although I'm preaching the gospel and talking to people one-on-one about Jesus. Only Jesus can save. As long as we are doing what we are called to to do. Look at verse 9. You can just see Nicodemus wrestling with this as as, as much as maybe some of you are. How can this be? Nicodemus says, how can this be? He's, he's, he's saying, I thought I knew how to get saved, but now I realize I actually knew nothing. Jesus wants him to know that this was always God's intent. It was never God's intent for salvation to be through works. It was never God's intent for salvation to be through obeying the law. It was always God's intent for salvation to be a work of the Spirit. And, and in fact, Jesus, three times in this passage, refers back to the Old Testament references to the Old Testament, even the wind of the Spirit. You know that, that we just read that, where the wind blows, the Spirit blows wherever it may please. I think Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 37, the passage of the valley of dry bones. Son of man, do you, can these dry bones live? You, Lord, alone know. And then he says, well, begin to prophesy, begin to, begin to release the wind and the breath of God. Jesus says, if you don't believe in the word, look at verse 13, then at least believe in me because I've come from heaven. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the son of man. And so then this brings us to verse 16. 
John 3.16. Jesus says, all right, Nicodemus, I'm going to summarize this for you. I'm going I'm to pack this together in, in, in one sentence. I want you to understand God's intent from the, from the beginning of time, God's intent to rescue mankind. Here it is. Listen. And, and, I, and he begins to unpack this verse. And we're going to take just the last five minutes as we bring this into land just to look in a little bit more detail this incredible verse. Friends, most of you sitting here know this verse. You can quote it. I want you, please, right now, to try your best. And, and I, if it's possible, I don't know if it's, if it's possible, but try to hear this for the first time. Try to embrace this truth. Don't, don't just sit there and say, oh, I've heard this a thousand times. Lord, I even pray right now that, that this word, this verse would just come with, with newness of life and with, with, fresh, with fresh revelation in Jesus' name. For God so loved. What a way to start. What a way to start the summary of God's intent. For God so loved. Have you ever disappointed a parent? Ever? No. Am I the only one? Maybe a spouse done something that you're ashamed of? I remember in my senior year of high school, I got 100% for a math test. And I wanted, there was a bonus question. And I foolishly saw the, the model answer on the desk in front of me, on the teacher's desk. And I cheated. And I remember the shame and the disappointment that my parents had when I got caught. Have you ever done something like that where you've disappointed a parent? Fallen short of their expectations? See, friends, the Bible tells us that every one of us has fallen short of God's glory. But you know what his response is? His response is not shame. His response is not to be disappointed with us. His response is to pour out love. For God so loved. How do we, how do we measure this love? How do we measure the, this, this love of God? We measure this love of God by its dimensions, by the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of God. For God so loved who? So God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God's, God's love, God's gift of His Son, friends, is for everyone. And if it's for everyone, then it's for you too. No one is excluded from the length and breadth and depth and height of God's love. God's desire, God's heart is that everyone come to know His Son as Lord and Savior. God's desire is that no one would perish. God lo- if God loves the world, then God loves you. It reminds me of what Nate challenged us with at the end of last year. The only opinion we can have of others is this. Jesus died for them. The only opinion we can have for others. How do we judge or measure this love? By who takes the initiative. What good is receiving love if we're the ones who, has to take, who have to take initiative? For God so loved the world that He gave. You see, friends, we get to respond to God's initiative. We're not the ones who have to take the initiative. And God desires that not just for salvation, but as we walk in partnership with Him. God never wants us to run ahead of Him. God's desire is that we are in relationship we are, where we are always responding to his, his initiatives. A friend of mine used to say, we are called to be human beings, not human doings. And in the first world, I think we often fall for that. We always want to do things to impress God. No, God is saying, respond 
to my initiative. For God so loved the world that he gave. How else do we measure this love? By what it costs. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He loves us so much that he was willing to give up what was most precious to him, his son. How do we measure the extent of this love? By how easy it is for us to respond. What good is love if you have to earn it? How great is love if you have to, if you have to work for it or earn it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, that's all that God asks of us, is that we come with an open hand and we say, God, I, I believe. And, and even that gift of faith, even that gift to believe is a gift that God gives us as we've just learned. Even that gift that awakens our hearts to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. That enables us to take God at his word and say, yes, I do believe Jesus died on the cross. Even that is a gift from God. That's how easy it is for us to respond to this love. How do we measure this love? By the outcome, by the result. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not come to judge the world. God's desire is not that the world would be condemned. Verse 17 through 20 of the rest of this chapter talk about the fact that it is hardness of heart that brings condemnation, not God's will or God's desire. God's desire is eternal life for every single one of us. And so as we end today, friends, this verse is a verse for every single person who has ever walked this planet. This verse is for not just the whole world as in those who are alive today, but everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever still be born onto this planet. But friends, I don't want you to, to lose sight of that truth and therefore not make this a personal challenge to you as well. This is as much a, a word for all of the world as it is a word for you. This is a personal word for you. This is a personal promise from God. And you need to respond to it personally. Who is God is this question we've been asking. God is a God who saves. God loves us so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you, can you answer that question in that way today? If I say to you today, who is God? Can you say, my God is a God who saves. My God is a God who saves. Do you know God that way? Maybe you're here today and, 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 and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to say, friends, today is the day of salvation. Today, just like every day, Jesus is inviting you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You don't bring anything to the equation. You simply open your hands like a beggar who has nothing and you say, God, I believe. Would you come into my heart, Jesus, and be my Lord? Can you say today, my God is a God who saves? But just before I hand over to you, friends, I mentioned to you guys, I want this to be a personal verse too. Remember those friends that I asked you to think about earlier? Remember those friends that I asked, or family members that I asked you to think about? I, need, I want you right now, please. This is, we want to pray for them. 
And I want you right now to bring them to the forefront of your, of your mind. I want, to put a, I want to put a name and a face to the sermon today. Think about your neighbor. Think about your work colleague. Think about your brother or your dad or your mom or whoever. Remember when Jesus said to, when God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Maybe that's the question that we're faced with today. Maybe God's challenging you. Nate, can your friend live? Maybe that's the question you're faced with today. Sarah, can your brother or sister or whatever, can, can they live? What is our answer? Lord, it's not, to, it's not up to me. You alone know. You alone know the timing, Lord. You alone know the timing when this can happen. What does God say to Ezekiel? He says, begin to prophesy. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I want you to do that right now, quietly where you are seated. Begin to prophesy over your friends. Begin to prophesy over your family members. Whatever their name is, John, for the sake of argument, John, I prophesy life in Jesus' name. John, I prophesy, hear the word of the Lord. Can you do that just for a moment right now? Just begin to pray, begin to pray for them. Begin to say, Lord, let them live. Let the life of your spirit breathe upon them. Cause their hearts to come alive. Father, I pray for that right now as we are lifting up people, friends and family members, neighbors, work colleagues. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, that you would breathe your life upon them, that you would breathe your spirit upon them. Lord God, that you would send the life that comes from you and you alone. Father, may we be a church that is always willing to do our part, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to pray for the sick, to tell people about Jesus. But Lord, I pray that pressure, the pressure to perform would be broken off of us, Father, And we would just be liberated to be those who would tell others about you, but then just trusting in your work, trusting in your power. Father, I pray that you would set us free today to be those that are hungry and desiring to tell your word, tell of the good news of Jesus. We pray for this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.